One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At first... It was just a low murmur of discontent. I wonder if you heard it too. If you're a woman, anywhere between, let's say, 15 and 50, I bet you did. Women were complaining about the contraceptive pill, side effects that they'd put up with since puberty and would likely deal with till menopause. Suddenly, everyone was trying out a period tracking app. Ads for natural contraceptive methods kept popping up on my social media. And then, last summer, when news broke that the US Supreme Court had overturned Roe v. Wade, ending the constitutional right to abortion, that murmur rose into a roar. In the words of one viral tweet, if a woman has sex with 100 random men in a year, she can still only produce one full-term pregnancy. If a guy has sex with 100 random women in a year, he can produce 100 full-term pregnancies. So why exactly are we only talking about regulating women? It takes two to set the wheels in motion for a pregnancy and a birth. But all around the world, birth control remains overwhelmingly the burden and responsibility of women. Right now, there are 15 different methods of contraception available on the NHS. Just two of these are for men, condoms and vasectomies. And more and more women are now asking, why? How come, way over half a century after the contraceptive pill for women was launched, we still don't have an equivalent for men. And then one night, a couple of months ago, I was sprawled on the sofa watching the comedian Phil Wang on Netflix and something made me sit up. Very grateful to all you ladies, actually, for being on the old contraceptives. Thank you very much, yes. On behalf of the fellas, cheers. Appreciate it. It's not fair they have to do most of it still, you know? It's not fair that you ladies have to do most of it still because it's not like male equivalents haven't been developed. They came up with a male pill just a couple of years ago. They came up with a contraceptive pill for men. But the test subjects found that it actually sort of altered their body chemistry. Made them feel a bit sad. So they all went, hmm. Must not be ready yet. Women can just keep using their pill, which we presume is perfect by now. Could that be right, I wondered? Was the science for a male contraceptive in place, just not men's willingness to take it? So I started digging, and I found it. An international trial sponsored by the World Health Organization that was cancelled suddenly in 2011 because of side effects experienced by the male participants. But as I soon found out, that isn't the full story. 
I'm Hattie Garlick, and on this week's Slow Newscast from Tortoise, one of the biggest inequalities in global health, the missing male pill. So the relationship that I had with contraceptive was not great. That's Emily Glastonbury. She's 32 and she lives on a peaceful street in Manchester with her husband, Dan, and their eight-month-old son, Jack. And finding the right contraception has been a trial for her. First, she tried the pill. You go on it as a girl, go on it so, like, young, before you've even kind of, like, your body has stopped growing, basically, and before you kind of get in tune with yourself because you're so scared of getting pregnant when you're young and it's all very much encouraged by your doctors. It took a while for me to find one that didn't sort of give me migraines or make me have, like, horrific mood swings and, like, it took a while to, like, tailor that. So instead, she decided to try the contraceptive implant. It's a a thin, bendy rod that's placed under the skin of your upper arm and it slowly releases the hormone progestogen into your bloodstream. I'd had the implant in my arm and it hadn't agreed with me and I had to get it taken out early. And, like, I'd bruised from, like, here to here when when I got it put in in the first place. She got terrible cramps and migraines, so she switched to yet another contraceptive, an IUD. That's a a small T-shaped device. It's put into your womb by a doctor or a nurse. I heard somebody describe getting an IUD put in the pain as seeing colour, and I just think that is so apt. Like, it was just the moment it went in, like, I... I could have vomited like it was so painful and I remember her talking the doctor talking to me afterwards and I just I couldn't even like hear her I could barely like see her because I was just in like I was just in so much pain. But as Emily tells it it's not just a physical toll that contraceptives can take on you it's a mental load as well. It is a heavy responsibility it is like something that you have to constantly be thinking about like have I taken the pill how many have I got left I was actually thinking the other day like I won't ever get back those many many hours I sat in walk-in clinics when I could have been you could be I could have been doing anything with those days I could have been furthering my career I could be playing a sport I could be doing all of the things that men just get to do on a day-to-day basis without even thinking about it we'll hear more from Emily and her husband Dan a bit later but for now She's a sort of every woman. Because, sure, plenty of women love their contraceptives, but Emily's experience is far from rare. So if there was a chance that there was another option out there, a a way to share the burden with the men in our lives, I really wanted to find out why it wasn't available yet. So it's always been a rather a niche area, hasn't it? But actually, you know, it touches everybody, contraception, pretty much, sooner or later. uh, And so it's just got, you know, universal appeal. That's Professor Richard Anderson. He's one of the world's leading experts in male contraceptive research. He's been involved in a lot of groundbreaking trials over the past three decades, including the trial I think Phil Wang was referring to. It's one that ran from 2008 to 2012, sponsored by the World Health Organization. So on a wet, moody morning, my producer Brenner and I caught an early flight to Edinburgh. It turns out it was World Contraceptive Day, and that week an anti-abortion group was holding protests outside Edinburgh clinics that offer abortion services. But at the Queen's Medical Research Institute, where Richard's based, the calm was almost church-like. In his office, yellow files housed decades of research. 
On the wall, beside a diagram of the male reproductive system, was a child's drawing of weather patterns. Clouds, sunshine and lightning depicted in poster paint and glitter. The date on the picture said 2000, appropriate for a field that seems to have moved so slowly. It hasn't been fast, has it? You know, you're talking many decades since you know, people first thought of this idea and we still don't have a product, which is really pretty embarrassing, isn't it? Richard has a slide dating back to the 1930s. It shows how, when a man takes doses of testosterone, his sperm count drops, and then it bounces back again once he stops. But by the early 2000s, researchers were working with a different recipe for a male hormonal contraceptive. A combination of two different drugs that were given as separate injections in that trial, but theoretically, in a future product, could be mixed together to be in this, as a single product. The two drugs are testosterone and progestogen, which is widely used in female contraceptives. Both of these can slow down the release of the hormones that stimulate sperm production, and giving them together seem to keep side effects in check. Eventually, researchers were ready to launch a phase two trial, and that's a big deal. It was the first large-scale trial to test whether this combo would be safe and, crucially, whether it would prevent pregnancies. Ten study centres were set up all around the world. Australia, India, Indonesia, Chile, the UK, Germany. The first volunteer was enrolled on September the 4th, 2008. And from his test centre in the UK, Richard started watching the results come in. Yeah, so it all seemed to be going very well. We, there were no major side effects. I don't think anyone in the trial locally left the trial because of side effects. But some people feel a bit different, undoubtedly, on this, this type of hormonal contraception. Sometimes they feel an increase in libido, sometimes they feel a decrease in libido, sometimes they feel a bit moody. And were they side effects that surprised or worried you, or ones you might have predicted? No, these are ones you get routinely in these trials. And there were some mood-related Oh, yeah, symptoms. yeah, yeah. Again, I suppose, did the severity or, or scale of those trouble you? Not at all, no. Um, and as I say, we didn't have anyone, I don't think, who left the trial locally because of them in that study. You know, it was all going straightforwardly. In fact, 99% of all the side effects reported were mild or moderate. One volunteer did die by suicide during the trial, but the tragedy was investigated and found to be totally unrelated to the study. Plus, the vast majority of mood disorders happened at just one study centre. And the results were exciting. Out of the 266 couples participating, there were just four pregnancies, or 1.57 pregnancies for every 100 users. That's a better rate than condoms, which average at around two pregnancies for every 100 users. So, yeah, it was all going swimmingly. And then, in March 2011... Two and a half years after the trial started, that suddenly changed. Um, I think we all got, all the investors got an email from the organisers. Out of the blue? Yeah. The WHO had made a sudden decision to terminate the trial early. Volunteers were transitioned off the drug. Everything was wound up by May 2012. But it wasn't until a few years later, 2016, when the reasons for that cancellation were made public. A study about the trial specified that it was down to, and I'm quoting here, reports of mood changes, depression, pain at the injection site and increased libido. The press jumped on the story and women across the world were livid. Aww, poor men couldn't complete the birth control study because it gave you pimples and made you moody. 
You guys call that side effects? I call that day four of a fairy tale period. That are such little bitches. I mean, one of the side effects is increased sex drive. And new men always end up winning. I mean, this shot may as well be called more sex, less babies. That's the comedian Michelle Wolf on the US Daily Show. It's the narrative about the cancel study that took hold and the story that's been told about male contraception ever since. And that's why, you know, you're still bringing it up and every journalist continues to bring it up ad nauseam. And, you know, it's really quite tedious to be still talking about it 15 years later. I think you can hear the frustration in Richard's voice here. And frankly, I feel bad for stoking it because I can completely sympathise. Richard's been chipping away at the challenge of developing a male contraceptive for decades. He's weathered plenty of ups and downs in the field. Yet this cancelled trial is the one moment that's raked up again and again. And it's a narrative that's damaged progress. I mean, there hasn't really been significant activity within WHO in the field since. But I think it was a serious negativity for ongoing research within WHO uh, and Conrad, who are the co-sponsors with them. But I do think this trial is worth talking about, just not for the reasons everyone's focused on. For a start, this whole idea that it was terminated because men in the trial couldn't or wouldn't shoulder the side effects that women have been quietly carrying for half a century. That's not the case. There was something like 70-80% of both sexes said they would want it to continue. Actually, it was a WHO oversight panel, a body called the Research Project Review Panel, that made the call to terminate, not the male volunteers. I wanted to speak to some of these volunteers to get their side of the story. I got some leads, but no dice. And then I found something else. I had been on the pill previously and had started noticing some of the side effects that do come when people in my age bracket, which is mid-30s, take the pill. Decreased circulation in your toes and fingers and the usual weight gain and like that. That's a producer reading the words of a woman called Nanette Carden. Way back in 1988, Nanette and her partner called Gary Pascoe, participated in an earlier trial of a male contraceptive. They were living outside of Seattle at the time, and Gary and Annette were interviewed about their participation for a story on PBS NewsHour. There wasn't any video of that interview, but I found a transcript online, and we've had producers step in to read the words of Gary, Nanette, and the journalist. We had definite problems with existing birth control, which kind of led us to the programme that I'm in now. Gary and Nanette tried other birth control methods, but she was allergic to them. Thus, Gary volunteered to take part in the injection study to see if the experimental shot might be an answer. That was in September. The sperm count has remained at zero since, and Nanette has not become pregnant. After all these years of being the one to take the responsibility, it's really neat getting a rest from that. The interview really struck me for a few reasons. First, Gary's no misogynist. Way back in the 80s, he was willing to share the burden with his partner. Just like when you look beyond the headlines, the volunteer participants in Richard's later WHO trial appear to have been. Actually, a 2019 YouGov survey found that one third of sexually active men would consider taking a male version of the pill. Exactly the same percentage of women who currently use hormonal contraception. Nanette's keen to trust her partner with birth control, something else Richard's research supports. 
Back in the late 90s, he surveyed ordinary women at family planning clinics in Scotland, China and in South Africa. And only 2% of them said they wouldn't trust their partner to use it. But most of all, I'm touched by the familiarity of Nanette's story. She's expressing the same frustrations that Emily did at the start of this podcast. But she was talking 34 years ago. What happened when her trial ended? Did she have to go back on the pill? And if an alternative didn't arrive in her fertile life, will it happen in mine? So I'm nearly 40, I guess... That I don't I'm... think you can be needing to rely on this, to be honest, Hattie. I suspect this will be your daughter rather than yourself. <laughs> and do you think you will still be in this field of research? I will have retired, for sure, personally. I left Richard's office with a burning question. If the science has been there for a while, and men's wimpishness or unwillingness aren't actually the villains here then what the hell is holding male contraception back? Look, I know Richard said not to fixate on that cancel trial, but something about it is still really needling me. What's bugging you? I think it's those two oversight panels. That's me having a chat with my producer, Brenna. And here's what we were discussing, and bear with me, because this gets a bit into the weeds. So there were two different oversight organisations keeping an eye on volunteer safety during the terminated trial. In January 2011, the first, the Data Safety and Monitoring Committee, examined the latest trial data and decided everything looked good. But in March, just a few weeks later, the second one, the just as snappily named Research Project Review Panel, or RP2, took a very different view. It chose to terminate the trial. OK, so have a look at this. I've just got an email from someone who was involved in the trial they didn't want to share their name, but look, they're really not holding back. Okay, let me read this. It was a stupid and unjustified decision made by people not experienced in male contraceptive research and panicked by a few cases of depression. Just plain dumb. Wow. Right? But I guess the question is, do we buy that it's just plain incompetence? I mean, this is the WHO, right? It's not like we're talking about some amateur science club. I contacted the WHO, but they couldn't put me in touch with anyone who'd been on the committee back in 2011, saying, and I quote here, the deliberations of committees of this kind are not public. Eventually, I tracked down a member myself, but they were equally unforthcoming. So I emailed the WHO back to ask, how did these two panels come up with such different conclusions? Did they look at different data, perhaps, or approach it with different concerns? Right, Okay, so I've heard back. Okay, read it to me. Okay, so uh, hold on a sec. So, right, they say the the DSMB and the RP2 looked... ah, They looked at the same data and used the same metrics in assessing the adverse effects. However, RP2 felt that because the study had already demonstrated the efficacy of the drug in reducing sperm counts, there were no additional benefits in continuing. Huh. I'm so confused right now. What does that even mean? It's not unusual for scientists to interpret data differently, but everyone I spoke to told me that it was highly unusual and controversial for a DSMC's decision to be overruled like this. I didn't feel any closer to understanding why these two expert panels, looking at the same data for the same things came to such completely different conclusions about the study's safety. And then I found this on YouTube. 
I want to begin with a little bit of background that maybe some of you know, um, and that was the premature stopping of the WHO study using testosterone and norethindrone enanthate uh, because of side effects, essentially. And it really led the whole field, I think, to stop for a moment and consider the issue of adverse effects and then also the ethics of continuing studies or doing studies uh, for male contraception. And uh, so that led to some, some discussion, and I think this project is a first step into addressing the issues that were raised. Come and have a look at this. Come and see what I'm watching. I think it might be a major clue. What is it? So it's a panel debate, and it's being hosted by a non-profit called the Male Contraceptive Initiative in North Carolina. Should we try and get them on the phone? Yeah, let's do it. And I'm Logan Nichols, and I'm the research director at MCI. I certainly remember trying to learn more about the field and being introduced to that trial very quickly. I do remember seeing a lot of headlines when that paper was produced about men not being able to handle the side effects. And, oh, they canceled the trial because these guys are wimps and couldn't deal with the acne or whatever. And so I think that um, it really is a black mark on the public perception of male contraceptives and of men who participate in these sort of trials. And I think that, you know, the framing is, is often lost. And here it was, the piece that finally made sense of the puzzle for me. It wasn't about the risk itself, but how that risk was framed. And I know that sounds wonky, but hear Logan out. During contraceptive trials, you're giving healthy young men a drug. So one of the ethical considerations for contraception is that, you know, with female contraception, you're mitigating the risk of pregnancy, which, you know, in and of itself is a health risk. These young men are not getting pregnant. And so what are you mitigating? What sort of health risk are you mitigating? You know, any sort of health risk technically is too much if you're not actually mitigating any health risk on the other end. In other words, different standards are applied to the side effects experienced by men trialing contraceptives, but not because men are wimpy, because pregnancy is a risky business for women. Men, though, don't get pregnant. So the risk-benefit balance to the user is different. Any side effects are set against the alternative of just life as an ordinary guy. And I get this. My own second child was born by emergency C-section. And while it was terrifying for my husband too, the risks that he and I faced in that moment were really different. But in trials of male contraceptives, this adds up to what Logan's panel called a singular ethical situation. His colleague, Carmen Abbey, put it really well in that discussion. In clinical trials, when we're looking at adverse events um, and potential side effects, there's, right, there's not really an outline for how to interpret how much risk is too much risk. This foggy risk landscape also makes it hard for pharmaceutical companies to justify wading in. I'd say it's risk overall. We're giving a drug to young, healthy people for a very long time. And I think that they consider that a risky proposition, right? That means it has to be incredibly safe. But at the same time, the efficacy barriers are also very high. This is contraception. 80% success is unacceptable. They don't want to put in the R&D money that's required in the beginning to create a product that actually meets those bars. And then furthermore, they think about um, litigation. And without farmers' backing, it's hard to imagine funding the phase three trials that are needed way before a product can sit on a pharmacist's shelf in boots. 
Add in other factors, like today's regulatory environment, which is far more rigorous than it was back when the first female pill was in development, and suddenly I could see why it's taken so long. But I was also worried. Is that it, then? No hope, the end of the road? Well, not exactly. That's one reason that we pitched this idea called shared risk. Um, We've written a paper about it. And so I think it's a really cool way that we can frame things for regulatory agencies, for developers, to try and just reframe that risk such that if you administer a contraceptive to a male partner, you're mitigating pregnancy risk in the female partner. And thus the sum total of the risk for the two partners is less than it would be if a pregnancy were to occur. Logan's paper penned with colleagues is called Shared Risk, Reframing Risk Analysis in the Ethics of Novel Male Contraceptives. And here's what it proposes. The risks associated with pregnancy could be considered applicable to both partners in a couple. After all, it takes two. Suddenly, if you're developing or approving a male contraceptive, your risk thresholds are much clearer. You don't want the risks to be higher than those female contraceptives carry, but... If your drug carries a risk that's the same, or better, lower, than those attached to current ones, it will be justifiable, ethically, to give it to a man because it protects the couple, jointly, from the higher risks of unplanned pregnancy. And if all that sounds fanciful, well, consider organ donation. We already let donors undertake the risk of surgery to benefit someone else. But organ donation is altruistic. Male contraception, less so. Because, of course... Men do have a personal stake in preventing pregnancies, just not in ways that clinical trials commonly measure. Men benefit from contraception. Let's be very clear to say that. I think that uh, we need to do more studies on how men benefit from contraception, what their educational, economic outcomes are whenever they experience an unintended pregnancy. Um, All of these things are understudied, which I think that by really understanding that data, we'll be able to, again, approach, approach reproduction as a couple's issue instead of an individual piece, in the, in the appropriate cases, of course. In some ways, it's a little closer to the reasons loads of parents gave for vaccinating their healthy children in the pandemic. The kids benefited personally from COVID protection. But the positives of herd immunity were also a massive motivating factor. And actually... Logan suggests there will be benefits for the herd in male contraception, too. I don't say this a lot, but in terms of what male contraception can do for gender equality, um, I think it could make better dudes uh, in general. You know, I think that men can acknowledge their contribution in reproduction, their responsibility in family planning. Uh, And because of that, we end up with these relationships that are more empathetic, more equitable. There's more communication. There's more trust. There's more understanding about the burdens that we all face in determining our own reproductive future. Like that's step 30 and we're on step two in terms of getting men and women in a partnership to be more on equal footing. The gender pay gap, the domestic load. I was starting to get excited about the subtle inequalities that might be rebalanced if this first step, family planning and birth control, was shared more equitably too. If the other 50% of the population knew the horror of forgetting to take a pill just once. Could it tip the balance of sympathy towards women who get pregnant by accident? And Logan gives me some hope, because even if the medical research world isn't ready to calculate risk in this shared way yet, there are signs that the rest of the world may be. 
I think the time is right just in terms of a, a social moment. We're in a post-Me Too era. We have men who are questioning their own role in reproduction, men who are wanting to take a more committed role with their partners. Uh, this kind of societal shift to where men are considering themselves as reproductive beings for the first time in a long time. And I think that that makes, uh, makes this really an opportune moment. In a 2019 YouGov poll, 8 in 10 Brits said men and women should take equal responsibility for birth control. But what's far more interesting is that men and women were almost equally likely to take that view. And in the States, in the wake of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, there are signs of new eagerness from men. Searches for and inquiries about vasectomies are up. Hits to the MCI website too. And if the market starts clamouring for male products, it could change the risk calculations for pharmaceutical companies, encouraging them to reinvest in trials. So, are we at a tipping point? Is now the moment we finally get male contraception? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We met in 2014 at Glastonbury Festival. I saw her and the birds sung and the butterflies flapped and I saw her with her pretty red hair. That's Dan Glastonbury, and the red-haired muse he's describing is his wife, Emily, the one we met at the start, the one who described her terrible experiences with birth control. Badly flirted by telling her how good her handwriting was. <laughs> yeah. It's a novel line. It's a novel line. And he wondered why I didn't pick up on anything for a while. Just so. My producer Brenna and I are perched on a sofa in their small, light-filled sitting room. We're equally transfixed by their baby Jack, who's sitting on the floor playing with a basket of rattly toys and by their story. Because like so many women, Emily has had a difficult relationship with contraception. But unlike most couples, the Glastonbury's decided to do something about it. Just before the pandemic, Emily was online when she came across an ad. Couples in long-term monogamous relationships were wanted for a clinical trial testing a male contraceptive. 
it was advertised on Facebook. I guess I was just kind of like part of the target audience for that. And I looked into it and I thought, oh, this looks interesting. And, you know, something that I've always thought was missing in our lives was a male contraceptive. So then I sort of put it to Dan as to whether like he would want to do it. And yeah, you were quite keen, weren't you? The trial Emily stumbled across is a global one. It's being run right now by the Population Council and the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development in the States. And some aspects of it are going to sound familiar because the lead investigator here in the UK is Richard Anderson. And though the drug they're trialling is a gel, not jabs, it's made of testosterone and progestogen, the same two active ingredients that were in our cancelled trial. It's also the first male hormonal contraceptive to make it to a phase two trial since that one. But back to Dan and Emily. Yeah, I think I had to have a couple of glasses of wine. She got drunk, signed me up on Facebook. <laughs> no, I didn't. I had and then to... said, we don't yeah, have yeah. to do it, yeah. but I want us to do a medical trial where you take a drug that will reduce your sperm count. Mm. And I was like, all right, this is, this is a lot. <laughs> Totally understandably, Dan had a few reservations. There's a fear around signing up to a medical trial. And I also think so much of the gender roles that are assigned or taught to you as a, a male are like, you know, your fertility is your manliness, right? So the idea of like science messing with your ability to reproduce somewhere in the back of your brain, you're like, oh, well, you're taking, that's taking away what makes me a man. And that mm. could da 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 da. And so I think there's probably like a little bit of fear around that kind of stuff going on the back of my head. In the end, though, they decided to go for it. Dan had actually always wanted to participate in a medical trial. More about that later. Oh, and also... Turned out the hospital's right next to my favourite donut place. <laughs> yeah, that helped. <laughs> that, that, that really helped things smooth up. They applied, and then they went through interviews and medical examinations. Oh, so we started in April, didn't we? Like the whole... Chat process, and it wasn't until we went to Glastonbury so June. in June that yeah. I was actually on the gel. Mm. So, and then I then had to continue to be on contraception until it was the September of that year, I think. Because basically, what they wanted was my sperm count was like forty-two million, and to get someone pregnant, it need, you need to have at least five million. So they wanted me to be less than a million. So I had the drop from 42 down to less than one. And then once it stayed at less than a million for, I think, two months in a row, or not months, two checkups, which is like every three weeks. So like two checkups in a row. And then it was like, all right, here we go. Mm. You're going to you're gonna go off your... Contraception, yeah. And I'm going to stay on the gel. Mm. And we're not going to have a baby. <laughs> that was the plan. How did your day change when you were on the trial? Nothing. So like just any other person, I have to like get up and work and shower and brush my teeth. So all that happens is I just in the middle, wax some gel on my shoulders and in 30 seconds it's dry and that's it. That is as difficult as it gets. And for Emily, the benefits were unexpected. Just became really in tune with like how my body goes each month. So it was, there was goods and bads of coming off of it for me. I started getting bad PMS again and like that was something that I just kind of didn't even realise was 
a part of me because I'd been taking hormonal contraception for so long. It was crazy just to kind of go, oh, okay, well, that's what my body does every month. And I've just been suppressing it. And then, after a year of using the gel, the trial ended for them. How did that feel? It's an indefinite end, isn't it? Like, the responsibility is handed back over indefinitely because we have no idea where this is going to go. Because, you know, it's been, been nearly four years since we signed up initially to it. It's a bit like the end of the film The Graduate, when they get on the bus and then they're like, oh, it's the end, but what happens next? Oh, God, I don't know what to do now. Mm. Then you're going to feel very, like, oh... I don't know, thrown out into the wilderness. Give us back the gel, fend for yourselves. You had a taste of freedom, smell you later. But Dan and Emily had decided to try straight away for a baby, so they were excited. Dan's sperm count rose quickly, and eight months ago, Jack was born. And Dan says that participating in the trial has actually had an impact on the way they parent together. I feel like going through the sharing of the contraception definitely made me I think it made me more, just more aware of how much Emily does that I take for granted and maybe how much women do that I took for granted in the first place it's very easy to be an ally as a male but that doesn't mean you're, you're still actually pulling 50% of the weight Actually, for Dan, there was something else significant about taking part in this trial. I've got a book of 101 things to do before you die, and one of those things is take part in a medical trial. I had cancer when I was 19, which is the reason why I now have the book, because when I got the all clear after a year of chemo and radiation therapy, my mom bought me the book as like, uh, you're, you've got your whole life ahead of you, do all the things you can. When I wanted to do a medical trial, I just wanted to take something off a book. And I tried signing up to all sorts of medical trials. I literally had no idea what they did. And I, in no way would have affected me positively. But this medical trial was the medical trial for me because it has helped me develop as like a man, as a human being, as a partner, as a husband, as a father. And like, I didn't expect any of that. I just wanted to tick something off a book and make some money. And in the end, I'm a better person for doing it. And I feel like I've contributed to science and the well-being of other human beings. So thank you, Nest Study. <laughs> Did not expect to say that. I'd never really considered it before. But yeah, it's, it's improved so many things in my life. I wanted to know if Dan was a happy anomaly. How positive were the other trial volunteers about their experiences? So I asked Richard Anderson about volunteer recruitment. And... For someone who appears to guard his professional expectations pretty carefully, you can hear the edge of excitement in his voice. So when we started, it was extraordinarily positive. And, you know, we got masses and masses of phone calls. Lots of couples came forward. It was it was going very, very well. And again, you know, a, a lot of interest, actually. It's been really not difficult to find couples to do this. Do they share their motivations with you? Yeah, yeah, because we're always asking why they're doing it. And the main, as I said, the main reason is being fed up with there being only female methods around, basically. And the data that's coming out of the trial, what's that telling you about the efficacy of this method? Well, we don't have final data, obviously, as yet, but it's been amazingly successful. I get the sense that you're trying to kind of... Stay level-headed about it and not well, be excited. Yeah, um, it, it, there's a lot still to come, 
But I, I, I am amazed. I thought we were going to get lots of pregnancies in this trial, to be honest, um, because, as you say, it's very easy to forget to put the gel on. And, you know, there was a worry that if you did, your sperm count would just be bouncing back straight away. And that absolutely is not happens. Efficacy rates appear to be better even than for the pill. Exit interviews show that some women don't want to return to female contraceptive methods. And loads of couples have asked if they can re-enrol just to continue taking it. Actually, the results are so good that the study sponsors are already writing a protocol for the next step, a phase three trial. That will be the furthest a hormonal male contraceptive has ever gone in trial. Uncharted territory. And so, this is the bit I don't want to say. I'm loath to disappoint. Or maybe you'll actually breathe a secret sigh of relief, who knows. But that phase three trial will likely need funding from a pharmaceutical company. And though there's hope of reawakening interest, for the time being, they still aren't dishing out the dollars. The Male Contraception Initiative, where Logan works, told me that in the last decade we've got data for, farmers' total investment in male contraception was equivalent to just a third of a top-paid pharma CEO's annual salary. Even with funding, a phase three trial could take up to five years to complete and then come regulatory hurdles. The sponsors of the gel trial are hoping to meet with the US regulators before the year's out and get some answers. But for the moment, no one knows quite how the FDA and other regulators are going to measure the risk-benefit ratio in a male contraceptive. So where does that leave us? The appetite's there for men and their long-term partners. The science seems ready, the political environment primed. But the product is still a long way off. And for that reason, everyone I've spoken to for this story, while they rave about its potential to change the world... They've discussed those benefits in terms of their children. Dan hopes Jack will one day have the option of taking it. He'll encourage him to, he says. And when I speak to Logan one last time, it turns out his wife is about to be induced the very next day with their second child. They already have a son. He's four years old now. And so, you know, chances are that, you know, let's, let's just hand wave and say that we're 10 years away from the male contraception actually hitting the market. Um, he will be among the first generation of users that will have an option and maybe even more, more than one option available to them um, as he becomes, you know, reproductively active. That's something I think about a lot in terms of my kid and now my kids and how we can create this equitable contraceptive world that, that helps them. In the current environment, with reproductive rights eroding and expectations for more gender parity rising, the knowledge that a male contraceptive won't happen soon, it's a hard pill for many women and some men to swallow. But I started this story imagining that it might be one about misogyny. In the end, it's about risk. It's about the risks that women have taken for half a century about the risks men are prepared to take to share that burden, but even more so, how the industry looks at risk. But it's also about the risks we face if we don't take those leaps. The risks of strangling reproductive rights. The risk of widening those inequalities of opportunity that stretch far beyond the moment a pill is popped or a gel is applied into the future of our families, our workplaces and societies. Actually, 
We may not have true gender parity till one day you walk into the family planning clinic and half the people sitting in those rows of plastic chairs having taken half a day off work to be there leafing through dog-eared magazines. Well, they're men. A day when reproduction really is shared. I thought Logan put it best. You know, having a kid should be like launching a nuclear missile from a submarine. You have, you know, two keys and you have to put them in and turn them at the same time. You know, it should be a, reproduction should be opt-in for, for both parties. Both people in a relationship in a dyad are able to control their fertility, are able to contribute to the reproductive goals um, of that relationship. Um, I think that it's kind of a, a noble idea that we could, we could have true reproductive autonomy where each, um, member of a dyad has their own choice and has their own path forward, but they arrive at a shared conclusion together and then they either turn that key at the same time or they decide not to turn the keys together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. It was reported by me, Hattie Garlick. The producer was Brenna Daldorf. Sound design was by Sam and Bartha and the executive producers were Jasper Corbett and Kerry Thomas. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. Before you go, let me tell you about Hoaxed, the latest podcast series from the Tortoise team behind Sweet Bobby. I hope you've already listened, but if you haven't, it's an investigation by Alexi Mostris into one of Britain's most serious conspiracy theories. It's a story about a modern-day satanic panic, the victims whose lives it destroyed, and the conspiracists who spread that lie around the world. All six episodes are now available to listen to today. Just search for Hoaxed wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.